This week's episode made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. My name is Anna Ellis. Uh, I'm back after a long uh, time away, um, but I wanted to jump in for this conversation today because it is a doozy. I just got back from vacation and, you know, to come in first thing in the morning after vacation and um, tackle just the little issues like crime. Yeah, public safety. (laughs) Just one little thing. Um, So I'm here with my friend and teammate, Anna Thompson. Good morning, Anna. Good morning. Uh, And we're going to we've got a a jam packed episode today. So I'm going to bring us into our guests. But I just want to call out quickly. New Memphis has a busy, busy summer, um, which you know, a lot of y'all are thinking about taking a chill time off in the summer, going on vacation, not here at New Memphis. We really dig our heels in. We've got a ton of events. We've got a Supper What's Right luncheon focused on poverty abatement, speaking of um, just small little issues that our community needs to tackle. Um, we also have a full calendar of events for our summer experience for college students, young professionals. So I'm just going to say go to newmemphis.org, check out those events. Um, they're for the most part, free and open to everybody, and we'd love to have you join us. Um, but as I said, we've got a big episode today. We are joined by our friend, uh, Mr. Ben Adams. Ben um, is uh, a chairman emeritus of Baker Donaldson, so he is um, a, a long time. He's served as a chairman, as a chief executive officer of the firm, so he has been in the Memphis community for um, many, many years and has been um, a very successful attorney, obviously. But he's joining us today because he's also really um, the paragon of community leadership. He is a man who has thrown um, his his time, energy, and talents behind some of the most important and, frankly, um, some of the, the most challenging issues that our city faces. Right. So um, he is um, involved as an executive committee member of the Greater Memphis Chamber, uh, co-chair of the chairman's circle at the chamber, um, but he is also um, heavily involved as the, uh, as the chair of the Memphis Shelby Crime Commission. Um, we're going to talk more about what the Crime Commission does. It's, it's a challenging, uh, as I said, uh, work that um, you know, Ben helps create the strategy and they have just developed a new five-year plan and he's going to sort of walk us through what that looks like and what our community can expect. So let's jump in. Let's do it. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Great. Well, I wanted to, first, I mean, we've, we uh, have given the audience uh, your, your very impressive bio, um, but I would love to start, you know, we're here to ask you about your community leadership, which is substantial. So how did you, first of all, get involved in the Crime Commission from a leadership perspective? Well, I was involved with Memphis Tomorrow, and one of Memphis Tomorrow's uh, primary strategies is uh, working with the Crime Commission to reduce crime. And so the folks on the Memphis Tomorrow Board get involved with different community organizations uh, to kind of pursue those strategies. And I picked this one. Um, um, no one else was as interested. Okay, in I was like, I was, was it a, no one and, else had their hand up? Being, being a lawyer, it gave me a little bit more credibility to get involved with the Crime Commission uh, maybe than some of the other uh, folks, mm-hmm. uh, at, at least perception-wise. Of course, yeah. Really not in reality, but perception-wise. So, and not many other people were interested in that. They're more interested in education or, or economic development or this or that. So, I well, raised I, my hand and said, "I'll do it," I, which is incredibly admirable because it is a really tough nut to crack. Not that education and poverty abatement aren't also, you know, these big intractable problems, but public safety is, um, you know, it, it it doesn't. As we talked about earlier, it, it's harder to 
put a rosy spin on it. You know, when you have these wins in the education space, for example, you can sort of shine a light on, look at this great, you know, success at the school or, you know, this metric that we're seeing improvement on. And um, with public safety, it feels like it's always sort of a focus on the deficit. So it's, yeah, you know, we don't talk about it when you have a night of, of safety. You know, we, we have to talk about it when we don't. So um, I'm curious, when was that that you first got involved with the Crime Commission? I think I got involved around 2007 and mm -hmm. I became or maybe six, and I became chair in 2009. Okay. So that so long time. It is a long time. So in that period of time, I, I just want sort of a macro. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the current report and sort of where we're at in this minute. But over that last 15 years, tell us a little bit about what you've seen in terms of progress and where you feel like um, we've sort of missed the mark and need to be drilling down further. Wait, I'm sorry. Can I take a pause really quick oh, yeah. and have you talk a little bit about what the Crime Commission is generally fair, first? Fair. So <laughs> For those who might not have ever heard of it um, or whatever. So, The Crime Commission is a is a nonprofit, 501c3. Okay. And there are 50 board members, half public sector, half private sector. And our job is to help work with all of the stakeholders to develop a plan okay. to reduce crime uh, in Memphis and Shelby County, and to pursue the execution of that plan. If you think about it, there are a whole lot of folks involved in the criminal justice system and law enforcement, in various um, social safety programs, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, social programs, and so it's a wide number of people, and, you, and they all can easily go into their own little turf. And the mm -hmm. job is to keep everybody working together with common strategies, so that we uh, move down the road together. Now. We have made, and people don't realize it because they focus so much on the aggravated assaults, which are our big problem, but we've made tremendous progress in the last 15 years in reducing serious property crime. It is way down from 15 years ago when we started all this. Um, we made tremendous progress until, you know, maybe 16 or so with violent crime, mm -hmm. uh, big reductions with violent crime which I would attribute to uh, active policing, proactive policing, community policing, a lot bigger uh, police complement than we have now. Um, and that's really hurt us, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Okay. And of course, you know, you can't solve crime if you can't really improve the standard of living of your mm. citizens. So, I mean, that's a, True, big, yeah. a big chunk. And we're not, that's not our focus. That's a lot of other people's focus, but we, are, we appreciate that we are just part of this this mission of reducing crime. So you mentioned, as you were um, kind of giving us the um, foundational understanding of what the Crime Commission is, the diversity of stakeholders in this work. So obviously, if you know, I assume folks listening, when they think about uh, fighting crime and public safety, obviously they identify the police department, maybe the public defenders, uh, maybe the district attorney, all these folks who are involved in the justice system. Who else is a partner, is a thought partner in the work when you guys have this plan and you sort of say, okay, we all need to be rowing in the same direction? Who else is at that table that you feel like maybe the average uh, Memphian wouldn't think about? Well, the two mayors are involved. You've got various legislative folks involved. You've got folks uh, such as uh, representing the Family Safety Center to mm -hmm. deal with domestic violence yeah. or the Youth Assessment Center that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. You've got a number of community um sort of activist types that are there in, from North Memphis to South Memphis that are very involved in their particular neighborhoods or the reentry programs. And then you have a number of business and community leaders that are there to just sort of keep the 
conversation going and keep everybody, you know, on track and honest. You know, my job is to raise money to support the organization so they can function, and along with the rest of the business community, to try to keep all the stakeholders accountable for what they've agreed to do. Mm. It's interesting to me because I feel like even in a small team, it can feel very siloed, like even on any team that any like working, no matter where you work, you can get into the nitty gritty of what your job is, what your deliverable is. So it's interesting to me that I wasn't as super aware about the Crime Commission because it makes complete sense that that would be necessary to, like you said, make sure everybody's rowing in the same direction because I could see that every stakeholder that you've already talked about and the ones that we haven't even mentioned yet would get really in the weeds of kind of their own business and be siloed that way. So I feel like as a community, it's really nice to know that this exists and that it's existed for so long. Well, what's great is that these um, uh, law enforcement or uh, political leaders, they step up and say, I'll be responsible for this strategy. Mm. And they come prepared to talk about that strategy at our meetings. And so there's gentle accountability um, through that. Like you know, that obviously term, we can't. I like that. We, we can't make anybody do anything, mm-hmm. but um, we're all in it together, and it and it works pretty well. But these are tough challenges. Absolutely. Well, I want to get into. Sorry, um, we can go back to your question. Now. Oh no, 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 now, no, that, now, now, now that we know, <laughs> I have so many questions, and I, I find this so fascinating. And honestly, you know, Ben, in the work that New Memphis does, and in that the Chamber of Commerce does, and we're all kind of working towards building prosperity in our community. Um, you know, it's our job often to lift up, to shine a light on what's going well in the city, to celebrate that progress, to uh, enable and develop leaders who are going to lead that forward. And and I, this is such an important issue to us because it is sort of the the number one thing that people sort of blob at us, well, oh yeah, you've got that. Oh, it's so exciting, you've got this new public park or this company's coming here. But like, but what about the crime? You know. Right. And I think um, I'm so committed for this organization to not turn a blind eye to that or pretend that it doesn't exist because I think we have to have this clear-eyed approach to say this is a distinct and severe problem. How do we point people towards folks like the Crime Commission and all of those partners? from, again, those doing reentry work and those working at the neighborhood level, thinking about public safety, um, combining those to say, hey, there are people who are committed and and smart and creative who are working on solutions. Um, So I just wanted to call that. That's why we're just excited to talk about it. So I have so many questions. Um, So getting back to just this, it, the, the product of the Crime Commission is, is a plan, right? It's a strategy. But then I know you guys have metrics. So tell us a little bit as we look at this current report, where does this data come from? Is the Crime Commission gathering that data? Or And I assume that's a huge advantage to your partners that you guys are providing the sort of dashboard of, of where we're at. Yeah, I wish you told me you wanted me to bring you that data. We have <laughs> reams of data. And we go over data at every meeting and we publish all kind of mm-hmm. data. And we have access to the data through the TBI and through the various local, um, you know, criminal justice organizations. I mean, MPD and the sheriff and the various municipalities. So we get all of this data, and um, and through juvenile court and other different metrics. And so, yeah, we do have a lot of data, and it's important uh, to keep measuring yourself. Mm. Um, it's it's sometimes difficult to compare yourself to other cities yeah. because everybody does data measurement differently. Um, there are a lot of different games that people play with that. Mm-hmm. So it's a little more instructive to measure yourself against yourself mm. uh, where you're doing consistent methodologies all the time. I like that better. It, it sounds better than like 
comparing apples to oranges because no city is alike. And so it makes sense, like you said, to compare yourself against yourself. Like you're just trying to be better than we were previously. I mean, the other's instructive, but I would caution people not to put as much emphasis on it as on how we do versus ourselves. Okay. Because that's a more consistent methodology. Yeah, I've certainly heard, and I, I, I don't have the specifics, so I won't um, speak out of turn, but, um, you know, every every state, every municipality can uh, move those numbers in different ways. So how you qualify, you know, a certain kind of crime can lead to the, the change in those statistics. So I, I see that. I am curious, though, on the flip side of that, how much of the work of the Crime Commission is influenced by best practice that you see in other cities that are having success in terms of reducing crime very much i mean that's well some of the things i'm going to talk about are very much influenced by proven strategies that have worked in other markets you know you've heard of blue crush for example mm-hmm. data-driven policing that came out of new york years ago and everybody has tried to do one version or another of data-driven policing so that we can more proactively prevent crime by doing hotspot policing using data to predict where crime will occur and meeting it before it occurs. So that's an example, mm. you know, where instead of just reacting all the time to crimes that have already occurred, using data to help prevent crime. So that's just one example. I'm going to give you several others. Give, give us that. Yeah, yeah, I would like so, you to go ahead and so, dive so into maybe, some of those. So maybe uh, I told you that our job is to develop a plan uh-huh. and to monitor its execution. This is actually our fourth five-year plan. And I, I must say that Bill Gibbons is our is our executive director, and he is uniquely qualified to do this with all the jobs that he's had as public safety commissioner for the state, for DA for 12 years. He's been involved in so many things in Memphis, um, uh, and he wears two hats. He heads the the, uh, uh, the Public Safety Institute at the University of Memphis and the Crime Commission. So he's uniquely qualified, and we're lucky to have him. So he is the full-time executive director, and I'm just the volunteer fundraiser. Um, so this is our fifth plan, um, and there are 20 action steps, and obviously I'm not going to talk about all 20. <laughs> I want to give quick sound bites on a few, and then I want to talk about some of the harder stuff. Yeah, okay. So uh, you know the Truth in Sentencing Bill is passed. That's a bit controversial. All I'll say about that is the current situation is untenable. It's like a leaky sieve. We well, need, why don't you tell, so for those listening who aren't familiar with the legislation, give us the sort of quick 101 on that. So in under current law, you can uh, get out at 30% of your sentencing, plus you can get all kind of other credits. So somebody might get out a three-year sentence for ag assault, and they may get out, you know, after a few months. Mm. And that's just not a very good system. It's not, it's... Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen, and that's not good. It's not, it's not fair to the victims. So the, the new truth and sentencing bill, for really serious stuff, you can't get a reduction at all. For good behavior, you get other benefits, but not a reduction. Some of it you can get a 15% reduction, but it's a pretty big change. They still need to fix ag assault because, frankly, our biggest problem in Shelby County is ag assaults. That is the by far the driver of all our negative statistics. Uh, you think about it, an ag assault with a gun is just a murder that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. It's a missed shot. So it's very serious business. Okay. Uh, not all ag assaults are with guns, but it's very serious business. And you can literally uh, just get probation with an ag assault. You don't even get any sentence sometimes, uh, oftentimes. So that's a big 
whole even with this truth and sentencing legislation. But we definitely needed to beef that up. Um, is it too strict in some ways and too lenient in other? Maybe so, but it's a lot better than it was, and we'll have to keep working on it. Um, so truth and sentencing passed. The Youth Assessment Center has opened in Raleigh. Uh, the, that is um, an effort at taking very low-level youth crimes they're not real serious and trying to pr- help that child not become a permanent part of the juvenile justice system mm-hmm. so working with that child could be truancy could be a shoplifting trying to get to the bottom of what's going on in that child's life and their family working with them to get that child back on the straight and narrow so they're not in the juvenile justice system at all so that's is that just run is that a public organization or is it a public private it's part of the shelby it's part of shelby county government okay um and we've had fits and starts with it, and it's hard. And we need to, we need to get some successes with it, and we need to beef it up, because um, it's just going to be open nine to five to start. We'd like to be more like a place. Miami's got a proven youth assessment center that's open 24 hours a day, and it's got all kind of services right there. This will be a more of a pilot, okay. um, more of a we'll stepping ho- stone. Yeah, ho- hope to build from there, but it's open. Uh, Mayor Strickland was was. Uh, really big leadership on opening uh, boys and girls clubs in 10 Shelby County middle schools or high schools. Really important that we find constructive, safe places for kids uh, after school. What's great about that is there's no, the, the schools are already there, the, the uh, facilities are there, they're open, the utilities are there, they've got sports fields and all this stuff, and you don't have to transport the child anywhere. You don't lose anybody when school ends because they get to stay right there. So that's a big prevention effort that's already underway. We're excited about that. We have great leadership from our Office of Reentry led by DeAndre Brown. Uh, Mayor Harris is committed to a lot more resources for that, Uh, maybe transitional housing. So excited about his leadership um, uh, with with DeAndre Brown. We need to expand our neighborhood groups. Uh, neighborhood watch groups you know that's something that everybody can be involved with everybody needs a neighborhood watch group in their neighborhood we need citizens engaged in this Uh, we need to expand Safeways Safeways is our sort of neighborhood watch group on steroid in apartment communities Hmm. because they're apartment communities they can do things if all the all the residents agree they can make it even a stronger neighborhood and and more uh, collaboration with the police, more technology uses, um, prevent unwanted visitors there. They get to do things in a Safeways apartment communities that you can't do just out in a neighborhood. And proven success in reducing crime in those. We gotta scale it up. We need more more of those. Um, we gotta continue working with the U.S. Attorney to pursue vigorous prosecution of gun crimes because the federal laws, particularly with felons with guns, you can, they're tougher. And if you work with the feds, we have an ongoing collaboration between uh, the local and the feds to pursue prosecution of gun crimes, you can uh, uh, be a little bit tougher in doing that. Those are some sort of obvious ones, but let's talk about some of the really harder stuff. The, the, the first one is expanding the number of police officers in the police force. First, why is that important? Well, you know, you see, you read about it all the time. And people are kind of like, well, you know, is that really going to reduce crime? Here's why I think it's so important. Right now, MPD gets about 975,000 calls a year. 
they got to react to those calls. You can't just ignore them. Right. Well, if all you have is number of police that maybe can react to calls, that crime's already committed. That incident's already happened. You've got to have more police officers to do more proactive policing. And proactive policing, and we do some of it, but we can't do as much as we need because we're limited by our, our complement. So pro- proactive policing is sort of two areas. One, the one we mentioned, data-driven policing, where you're using data and you're out there looking for hot spots and preventing it. But the other one is community policing. You've got to have relationships in these neighborhoods. People have to know you. They have to trust you. They have to be willing to tell you what's going on. They have to be willing to tell you that such and such house over there is a drug house or that these people over here are really, really bad actors or that a particular crime occurred and we know who did it. If they don't trust the police, they're not going to tell you any of that. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to have stable relationships between our officers and neighborhoods. And you can have a lot more people to do that. Again, we're not, not doing any of it, but we're not doing it nearly the degree that we need to. You know, we've got 1,950 plus officers and uh, we need, whether it's 2,300, 24, 25, I don't care. I'd like to get to 23 first and then we can argue about getting more. So, so what we, is over, I mean, because I, I think that this is a, I mean, obviously, and I, I, will say, you know, I know it's really challenging, especially in this moment, to um, to be advocating for things that, you know, there are a lot of differing opinions on it. Um, you know, I think what you've shared so far is we have a lot of different strategies that are working and we need more of them. Um, and whether that be, you know, community policing, but also, again, the the prevention work that's happening in our, in our youth centers, in our schools. What is, historically speaking, again, this can just be limited to your time, what were the police numbers? Are, are they at an all-time low? Have they always been this low, and we we've always needed to increase? Or have what? Do you have us just a sense sure. of the sort of landscape? So around in 2006, they were about where we are now, mm-hmm. below 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mayor Harrington and Director Goblin went on a major uh, initiative to increase the size of our police force. By 2011, we'd gotten up to. 24, 2500. Coincidentally, our violent crime from 2006 to 2011 went down dramatically, like 37%. Mm. So can you prove that the number of police is directly corollary to violent crime reduction? Who knows? But it's certainly part of it, right? So here's what's happened um, lately. Um, So we sort of lost, lost focus on this. We didn't have as many police academy classes for a couple of years because of budget reasons. Then we had sort of what I'll call the Ferguson effect, uh, as well as then the, the George Floyd um, murder. And that's had a tremendous uh, uh, aspect on terms of negative attitudes toward policing, police being afraid of doing their job, police afraid of being police. Then the pandemic hit, you know, police didn't want to even get out of the car because they didn't want to get sick either. You've had a lot of things go against us, and we lost, over time, we lost ground, and we lost our ability to keep it up at that level. So Mayor Strickland has been all about uh, increasing this. The residency bill just passed. That's a big relief. Um, they've, They've given signing bonuses, relocation bonuses, stay bonuses. There have been nice raises. Nice raises are promise for next year they changed the promotion program stay-at-home cars Uh, we're trying to put up a public safety optional school program 
that's one of the things in the work so that we get people thinking about being police earlier. Um, just recently with Chief Davis, you know, it's, it's nice. I mean, our last director was awesome, and he was the right man at the right time to get us through the whole, uh, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, controversies and negative attitudes toward police. Chief Davis has come in, and it's good to have somebody new that's experienced things other places that can have new ideas, new approaches. And so they've changed a lot of their hiring and recruiting practices already. They've streamlined the background checks significantly. We've beefed up recruiting. Um, uh, we're now hiring the successful applicant right away. Before, think about this, there was a, a police academy every six months. So if someone applies for a job, they gotta go through this background, and then they say, okay, you're accepted. Well, it may not start for three or four months. People can't function like that, no. you know. They, yeah. So now, when they get approved, they get hired. They're not out on the street, but they get hired. They start getting trained, mm -hmm. and then the academy starts. So I'm really excited about um, all the things that Mayor Strickland and Chief Davis are doing, along with this residency bill getting passed, to beef up our police force. Um, we've got 72 scheduled to graduate next month. We got a, another class starting in July that should have 85 to 90, and a third class in the fall. But this is hard work because there's a lot of attrition too. Yeah. So how much of the challenge, you know, if, if the goal is to increase the number of police at MPD, how much of the challenge is pure recruitment and retention, um, and how much of the challenge is we need to in increase resources and budget? Uh, I think we've done a pretty good job in the recent years on the resources and budgets. I'm sure you can always do a little bit more, but Mayor Strickland's been very conscious of that, and that's why there's more raises planned in the budget mm -hmm. for this fall. Um, so I think it's more the former. So I, my understanding in the new budget is it's 5% increase this year and another 5% next year. Right, and plus there are retention bonuses of 9%. Right. It's kind of stay bonuses. If you stay this year, you are 9%. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure in this current climate, as you know, as as inflation grows and cost of living grows, um, I'm sure that's important. So I'm curious, you know, again, as you've acknowledged, I think, um, you know, this is one of those areas where there's been a lot of headbutting, um, both, you know, within our, you know, our, our um, representatives of the city and county level certainly have differing perspectives on it. I'm curious from from the the light that's been kind of put on police forces nationwide and looking at the clear challenges that, um, you know, we don't want to ignore. How, you know, as you guys want to increase the police presence in the city, are there also, has there been a little, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this, have, has there been an, an influence from Black Lives Matter movements and other um, concerns with policing that have helped reshape perhaps how y'all are training police, or preparing police, or holding police accountable. I mean, I feel like there's a little bit of give and take there where it doesn't just have to be, we need more and we're not gonna change anything to, you know, we, we understand that there are, you know, potentially systemic issues and we want to both be addressing those while also, you know, being aggressive and making sure that we're keeping our city safe. So I'm just curious, how, how has the strategy changed at all in the last, you know, two years in particular? I think they've, they've uh, put a lot of emphasis on training mm -hmm. and to, shore up some of those kind of things but remember memphis did really well mm -hmm. during this whole pandemic and black lives matter saga i mean so many cities had riots all over the place and a lot of challenges you know we're we were led by a, a, an african-american 
police chief. Now we're led by a female African-American police chief. Our police force is majority African-American. So we don't have the same kind of starting point that some of these places have had. But can we do better? And have we worked on training? Absolutely. And, you know, the city council's been involved with that. Mayor Strickland's been involved with that. There have been various task forces involved with that. Bill Gibbons mm -hmm. served on that. So absolutely, you know, that's a, that's an important, um, an ongoing uh, part of this. You know, during the Obama administration, they, they passed uh, uh, – sort of approved, forgot the name of it, but a whole initiative about best practices. And we've adopted all of those. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's important. Good. Yeah, I mean, I hope that, you know, within these moments of uh, debate and just, you know, everybody having, you know, differing opinions, you know, I think it's so important to remember that everybody at that table, regardless of their perspective, deeply wants a better future for our, our city and our citizens, you know, and I think that's one thing that um, as, as we think about how we're shaping public policy and how we're shaping um, city services, like making sure that all, of, I think, what I, I hope that one of the benefits is that all of those voices, while they can be contentious, have pushed us to think differently and perhaps, you know, shift the way that we're working some and, um, I, I, I've been encouraged by um, our, our new police chief seems excellent and I think she clearly has um, open ears you know for the the community and and as you noted the the importance of community policing and the trust that has to be there yes yeah, so that's a big part of it yeah and if that's we, what we need know. more and they need to have established relationships mm -hmm. they need to be really engaged with the community so so move on from a couple other tough strategies yeah. so focus deterrence which direct uh, general Amy Wyrick is in charge of that's based on models that have occurred successfully in other cities and that's where you take um we, we now have 200 200 repeat violent offenders in that program they're folks that are either on probation or uh parole and they have had a habit of repeated violent crimes and so you take them and you basically identify them and you put them in a room with all the law enforcement people and family people and others and say look we know your deal and you got two choices. You can either continue down this road, and we're going to be all over you. I mean, we're not going to – you violate the law. We're going to be after you the next day. It's not going to take weeks and weeks to find you and this and that. Or we will help you. We will help you get a job. We'll help you get educated, help you with housing. Whatever it takes to get you break from the cycle you're in, we will do that. We have now 200 folks in that, and – uh, the idea is to have them in that program for two years and see if we can really rehabilitate the more violent because they are such repeat offenders that they amount to a lot of the, the crime that's mm -hmm. done. So th the pandemic made it really hard to do programs like this, you can yeah. imagine. So this is, we had a, we had a pilot. Um, now we've got 200 in, in the program and we'll see how well that it works. You know, Memphis Allies, Tennessee Department of Corrections, a lot of folks, the service folks are involved. We need to then expand that model and do it with juvenile court as well. That'll be our next step with focused deterrence. Then you've heard about the mayor's efforts with uh, Mayor Strickland's efforts with group violence intervention efforts. You know, that's where you take people that have credibility in sort of the gang world or the other kinds of places where they're uh, murders and other shots fired and you try to prevent retaliation because so much of the 
really bad stuff is one group retaliating against another or one person against another. And so you try to intervene, whether it's with gangs or actually in the hospitals where these people are mm-hmm. shot. So you, you've got the 901 block squads uh, involved with that. The hospitals are working with us, uh, Shelby County Schools. So uh, that's uh, Mayor Strickland's initiative. Um, and that's tough stuff, you know. Absolutely. Uh, we've got, we've got a, a whole new effort going on with juvenile court. Uh, juvenile court has a lot of different programs, but they have not had the resources to deal with what I would call the very serious um, uh, violent criminals that are not so serious to be charged as an uh, adult, but a level down from that, which is most of them. Uh, and, and so youth villages and Memphis allies are going to work with juvenile court try to really have an intensive probation and supervision effort to uh, help these kids and their families get back on track. It's sort of the, the uh, soup, I mean, it's the more serious version of this compared to what I mentioned, the Youth Assessment Center, right. which is sort of the early stage. Uh, they just hadn't had the resources to do this, and it's really important that, that we make some headway because it's mostly the same people that do the, the bad stuff, both adults and juveniles. So that's just getting underway. And I will say, you know, Youth Villages has really stepped up that, to join with us and other organizations to try to intercede in the lives of young people and adults to see if we can get people back straight. Yeah, tell me a little about that. So I've, it's been, gosh, I don't know, since the pandemic time is a, is a blur, but um, Pat Lawler, the CEO of Youth Villages, has um, put together kind of a, a, a unique strategy for um, crime prevention that's really focused at the family level. That's right. And um, I, I, we had a conversation about it probably two years ago, and I, I know it's sort of continued to build. So tell us what you know about about that strategy and how that folds into the work that y'all are doing. Well, they have an, an extensive strategy. It covers a lot of different um, aspects. They're going to start as a pilot more in the Raleigh-Frazier area. Um, he's raised a lot of money, and he's got great plans in place, some of which are directly involved in the things I mentioned, and some go beyond that. And I, I, they've got a written plan, and I would suggest you get him on the say, show. We're going to need to get Pat to come yeah. out here. Yeah, yeah get, absolutely. Get him or Susan Deason or somebody mm-hmm. on the show, because I don't want to speak for them, but I'm excited that they have stepped up to work with our various strategies to help us, because we, we need that help. Um you know, there are a couple of areas that are very serious that we got to develop more plans for. Behavioral health. You know, there's people been really raising their hands screaming about the fact that here in Memphis and so many other places, we really need a strategy to deal with the, the mental illness and various behavioral health systems issues. So that's uh, that's a new area for us. We've never really been in that area. So we need to develop a plan there. The U.S. Attorney's Office is going to try to come up with a plan to reduce thefts of guns from vehicles. You know, uh, our our state is very pro-gun, as you know, and since they passed the laws allowing guns in cars without any kind of rules, and now we they can have guns pretty much anywhere, it, it's created a lot of problems for us. There are just too many guns on the streets. I don't think we're going to change our state legislature, so we need to come up with some strategies 
to reduce, uh, you know, carjackings and thus thefts of guns and cars and other gun-related crimes, even with the political environment that we live in. Mm-hmm which is not it, ideal for Shelby County. Right. It's interesting to me, all the things I feel like that y'all, that you've discussed as being the topics that y'all are addressing, it's very much like a push and pull. Like a, like you said, you can't change all the legislation. Sometimes you can. Sometimes you can slowly move the needle one way or the other. And it takes everybody to make these become a reality, to make these hopes, these plans, these strategies and metrics become a reality. It takes neighborhoods. It takes the average Memphian wanting to see and do better from the neighborhood watch to helping others in need, helping other um, like the family services to all of it. So it's it's not just not that I thought it was a one size fits all, but it's very nuanced. Every single bullet point that you just read off has very different stakeholders, has very different challenges and realities and so it's it's very interesting and ever-changing which I'm sure does not help to try to hit a moving target no pun intended but like um it's it's very complex and overwhelming it can be very overwhelming it's very (laughs) complex and that's just when you're talking about you know at the area of crime reduction we're in I mean when you talk about all the other strategies that people have to reduce poverty and improve education which are all really critical to this I mean you know our group can only do so many things. We're very interested in all those other things, but we can only tackle so many. You know, we can't right. be the school system and the this and that. I mean, you got a lot of, there are a lot of different organizations and efforts going on. And all those things are very important. And we'll talk about the chamber in a minute, but all those things are very important. But the Crime Commission is kind of doing its lane. It's, it's all stays within sort of the criminal justice world. Um, but they do all like form together to create the reality that it, and so that's what's interesting to me is even all the little puzzle pieces within the crime commission fit together with the bigger pieces of the education and the poverty abatement right. and all that other stuff to create a better community moving well, forward. I, I hope you know. I hope it, it's affirming to me that while yes, um, you know, there has to be a focus on the systems, the, the justice system in particular, and the laws that that drive those outcomes. I think you know seeing that within this plan there are pillars that are focused on some of crime prevention outside of the police force and i think that is something that anybody listening again regardless of of um sort of your skepticism about the justice system and 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 prosecution that those are are clear things that our community needs and again I, i i think it's really affirming that you guys have pulled in community partners who are doing that work, who are who are truly experts in, in those lanes. I mean, Youth Village is being a great example of, you know, an organization that's been working with youth, working in the foster system, working, you know, I mean, they understand um, those those individual challenges better than, you know, a, a district attorney might. Right. Um, so I think that's, you know, so, so wise. And one thing, you know, again, as we try to find the bright spots that Memphis can celebrate and say, hey, look, it, it's not a rosy picture, but we're, we're really doing well here. I think that's one thing that I always lean on is, you know, we are, we're not just sort of sitting back and saying the problem's pretty big and it's pretty complex. It's saying, okay, we're going to, we're really going to find those people who are, who, ha- who are creating great outcomes, maybe on a small scale and saying, okay, how do we align all of these perspectives and all of these different strategies? So you talked, so we've got this 20 pillar plan it's a five-year plan um from a, before we sort of switch gears a little bit and, and talk about the chamber give me a sense of if if all 
I don't want to say if all goes as planned <laughs> because I know it won't. But you know, as you think about the 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 landscape five years from now, what can a Memphian who today is frustrated and and scared living in our community, what what do you think will be a kind of concrete outcome that you're excited to see kind of come to fruition? Well, I mean, I can't guarantee it. Sure, right. sure, sure. Uh, but, <laughs> Your hope. <laughs> but our goal is to reduce murders by 50% and ag assaults by 30%. Ag assaults are really, murders get all the headlines. Ag assaults are what really drive our crime. Mm. I mean, they're just out of control, and particularly with guns. That's interesting. So, I, again, like you said, the headlines can be misleading. Yeah. Um, and so last topic on, on this, um, another area where we need to really beef up our efforts. We launched the Family Safety Center years ago mm-hmm. to deal with domestic violence. Domestic violence is a big part of violent crime. Mm-hmm. It is no small part of it at all. And uh, the, the Family Safety Center is sort of a one-stop shop for anybody suffering from domestic violence. But we've learned that we need to really kind of rethink um, all aspects of this so that we beef up the services that we provide how we get people there, get more use of it, provide more services, maybe transitional housing, whatever. I mean, we're not we're not accomplishing as much as we think we can and should. So that's an, a, probably the last area to, to mention. I think uh, that's super interesting because specifically in the last couple of years, I've heard that that's because everybody was home and that was quote unquote safe. That wasn't safe for people in domestic violence situations Mm -hmm. and so that is something like mental health and mental illness that has come that has kind of bubbled up to the surface and kind of escalated to the point that now everybody is more aware of the reality of what that looks like the past couple of years has kind of put that in a pressure cooker i don't remember if it's 30 percent, but it's a very meaningful number of of the percentage of violent crime incidents are in the domestic violence arena Wow. So it's yeah. it's definitely something to pay attention to. So I'm excited then to see the beefed up services and some of that. I think that that is, again, very affirming and reassuring to anybody um, as we ebb and flow in the current pandemic situation. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about the economy in the chamber? I Absolutely. Say, yes. Well, I mean, yes. Um, thank you. For, I, I would, I mean, this is such difficult work and it, I think it takes a lot of bravery for somebody, especially like you, who doesn't have to do this and could very easily just be enjoying um, more time on the golf course and not having to traverse what I know are very political waters. And uh, again, you know, advocating for this change can feel slow, but it's so meaningful. And I am, am I'm personally grateful. And I, I know that Memphis is grateful. So it is not the extent of your um, community leadership, though. You also have been a leader um, at our chamber, at our chairman circle for many years. Um, tell us a little bit about, I mean, obviously, some of these strategies all kind of uh, layer on top of one another. But give us a give us a headline here of, of what's coming. Well, so and that's a that's a, a good thing to start with, because the chamber's mission is relentless pursuit of prosperity for all. So you can see how that dovetails very well with what we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Because if we can elevate the standard of living and give more people jobs, more people better jobs, then we'll reduce crime for sure doing that. So um, a little bit about the chamber. First, I'm really excited about the chamber's positioning. Their leadership, their financial situation is better than I've ever seen it. Beverly Robinson's done a great job 
Indeed. Um, she really has been a great, she was the right person at the right time. She's done a great job getting us through this pandemic and through the Black Lives Matter uh, period of, of really, you know, tense times, so to speak. Did great leadership with that. She's been a great fundraiser, uh, along with your predecessor, Nancy Coffey, who runs the Chairman Circle. Nancy's grown that up to 140 members, and that is the primary, primary financial driver of the chamber. Why that's important is it allows the chamber to hire great people. And so two of the great people that I get to work with are Ted Townsend, who runs all the economic development efforts, and Amity Schuyler, who's newer, but who runs the workforce efforts. And I'm really uh, fired up about what they're doing. And before we talk about what they're doing, so it took us 10 years after the 2008 recession to get our jobs back to where they were before the 2008 Great Recession. This time, it took us two years instead of 10 mm. to get, we have now already exceeded the jobs that we had before the pandemic. We've exceeded it. Wow. The United States hadn't even done that yet. It's close to it, but it hadn't done it yet. So this is a, a, a great time economically, relatively speaking, for Memphis. We actually have more uh, jobs out there available than we have people to do them. So this is a great time to upskill people, mm. to get people beyond uh, these jobs where they've got two or three jobs and they're paying you know, $10 an hour. See if we can help people build a career that's got a place to go and that can make $20 an hour, $30 and on up. And so I'm excited about that. So uh, it's sort of a unique time in that sense. You know, we, we're always worried about unemployment and uh, not enough jobs and you know, the, the nation and particularly us are in a different situation than normal. And that's before Blue Oval City even kicks off. Right. We actually See? just had a few of the commercial appeal yeah. reporters um, here a couple of weeks ago to talk about the all things Blue Oval City. And we actually right before our Celebrate What's Right, What the Tech, we had Ted Townsend on to talk about all of the exciting economic possibilities for tech here in Memphis and what those jobs mean and how Memphis is on the forefront kind of bleeding edge when That's it right. comes to diversity in tech and everything like that. So we have, like you said, it's an interesting time to be in Memphis. We have it a is. lot going on. And since he's already covered that part, I'll just say, you know, he's got something like 40 uh, companies in the pipeline that he's pursuing. And a lot of them are advanced manufacturing. And that's the sweet spot because that gives great opportunities for career from beginning all the way up. Good paying jobs. Um, and so one of our channels. For, for, the, for the less aware listener who's not in economic development, when you say 40 companies, we're talking about companies who are currently headquartered in a different city but are thinking about Memphis as its, as its new or second headquarters. Or it may not be headquarters. It or may be a plant. Okay, right. Got right. It. Okay. Um, you know, so think about all our medical device companies that we have here now that, mm -hmm. that do a lot of manufacturing. Great industry for us. That's an example of advanced manufacturing, just like this Ford area yeah. of advanced manufacturing. So one of the challenges is we don't have enough sites, mm. big parcels of yeah. land that are really ready to go okay. for something like that in Shelby County. So, um, you know, th this prosperity has its... It's uh, challenges, too. Especially like the like, puzzle pieces. We have the desire, and we have the people here, like, looking for it. But we right. got to make sure they have the space. And so, you know, up, up in West Tennessee near the mega site, they've got plenty of land, mm -hmm. but they're, they don't have the infrastructure mm -hmm. for some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So It's always you, that give and take. <laughs> and, and so it's not just a question of Ford and SK. You've got all the suppliers that were going to come down and either be 
at the mega site or second, third tier might be in Shelby County or nearby. So we got to take advantage of all that and we have to be prepared for our workforce, not only um, uh, for the for those jobs, but what will happen is you don't want them to, to recruit away a lot of our people here and then not have folks upskilled ready to take those jobs. So I'm, I'm excited about what Amity's bringing to the table. So a couple of things that you should know about that. Um, first, an obvious problem that we just never really talked much about, it's just amazing to me, uh, is we have over 50% of the adults, those over 18 in Shelby County, and pretty much it's the same throughout West Tennessee, that have no more than a high school degree. They might have gone to uh, two-year college, but they didn't finish it. So we have all these adults have no more than a high school degree. We have all these jobs, but we have a tremendous lack of skills training. We've put so much emphasis in Tennessee on going to college, free two-year college. Everybody should go to college. That we've really neglected technical training. So we have a shortage in every aspect of construction, every aspect of you know managing an advanced manufacturing facility, machines, all that kind of stuff. You know, you, you name it in terms of the technical areas, and we're short. And we've not done a really good job of, of getting the high school kids to get trained in that area because we've been pushing college all this time. So we have all these adults that need skills. Well, the adults, they're not going to go back to a two-year college at this point. Life doesn't make it that easy for people just to quit what they're doing with their families and go to two-year college. So... 40 of us went down to Valencia College in Orlando, and they have stood up a tremendous accelerated skills program for adults, where anywhere from four weeks to 20 weeks, they train people in nation in national certification programs, and they're very employable right afterwards. They can still work some while they're doing it, and then they, they do these training things, and it could be depends on the complexity. I mean, welding right. could be 20 weeks, but there are a lot of other, you being an apartment construction manager could be, or apartment maintenance manager could be six weeks. But various, they have 20 different programs and they're, uh, uh, they've got about a thousand graduates a year. Industry has to get all in with it. We, federal, we owe a money, pays for the majority of it, not all of it. You got to get raised some private money, grants, industry money, but we're not we're not using our federal WIOA money hardly at all because we don't have the the demand for it. So we're really excited to stand up accelerated skills training. Uh, we're getting ready to have a one-stop shop. We're getting ready to launch that shortly where an adult, and when I say adult, I mean 20-year-old to 50-year-old, mm -hmm. they can go to this one-stop shop and learn everything that it takes and have all the social services and other skills, other services needed, whether it's childcare, transportation, you know, the training programs, hook them up with whatever institution is going to provide the training. Could be U of M, could be Southwest, could be more tech. You know, we're working with all these organizations to try to, to build a curriculum and then launch it so that we can get adults upskilled uh, and get careers. So I'm really excited about that. It's fast. I mean, I, again, I think um, Amity is, is, is quite quite a talent, and um, 
I love that we are again importing. You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. You know, everyone in everyone in the country is thinking about workforce development in this way. The, right. You know, the economies are changing, especially for a city like Memphis that has you know sort of logistics based um, industries. But I love this notion that. We can't, you know, I, I feel like for so long in Memphis, workforce development was, if you can come here at this time, we can give you this training to go get this one job for this company that's going to pay you, like, a little more than a minimum wage. And that felt like, you know, we were kind of dumping all of our federal dollars towards that. And to see the strategy become, we understand the population that we're trying to serve better. And they aren't somebody who, as you said, can stop working to go pursue educate you know they are often and we see this with our four-year college students as well you know at new memphis we do you know we want to make sure that we can walk and chew gum at the same time as a community so we have to be thinking about upskilling we have to be thinking about um, alternative tracks rather than a four-year degree but i also want to make sure the memphis has you know a knowledge-based economy as well and that we have you know a, a robust number of, of college graduates both coming out of our community and coming to our community um, but what we've had to to really understand is that our our college student in memphis is not necessarily the average college student if you were to look at global numbers they are not necessarily 18 to 22 they are not necessarily gonna finish their degree in four years they're more likely to be working and going to school they're more working likely to be supporting a family and going to school That's so right. you know all of the services that we have built to try to support college students has had to really shift to say we have a you know and i think this is a huge opportunity that we have a, a growing number of first generation college students so you know a third of the students at the U of M are first generation students who are need based financial aid. So I love to see Amity thinking about, again, not just what skills do these people need to get a job, that too, but how do we get them there via, you know, literally via transportation, yeah, absolutely. via childcare, via social services. So tell us when you, I mean, to me, this is, a, I, I also love that Amity has this like big vision. You know, she's not like, how do we do this for 10 people? She's like, how do we do this for 10,000 people? Um, you mentioned, you know, it, I always think it's important to point out um, paying for this. There are a lot of unused federal and state dollars that are already allocated to That's our right. community for this work that we return every year. That's right. Because we don't have people who are, are, are able to take advantage of it. I did not know that. Yeah. And again, I mean, yeah. when we say you've got to, you know, you, if you get downtown on this day and you do this program for this, you know, we'll pay for it. It becomes this barrier. So um, I love that she's thinking about it. Tell us and you may not know, and we can ask Amity on too to give us um, a deep you dive. Should. What is this the, the the time frame for this big vision in terms of, of creating sort of a model that you saw in Orlando here? Is this a five-year plan? Is this a 10-year plan? Is this a one-year plan? Uh, I will be very surprised if we don't have it launched by the end of the year. Really? Yeah, I, love I will to hear be that. very surprised. Now, will it be, will it be fully, uh, fully, you <laughs> yeah. know, well, 20 programs, no, but I'd like to have three of them. You know, the first three we want to do are the construction industry, the advanced manufacturing, and the logistics mm -hmm. supply chain, um, and and then go from there. Mm -hmm. But I'll be surprised if we haven't made a real dent in getting started by the end of the year. That's great to hear. So, But it was That's just amazing exciting. for the 40 of us that went down. There's 40 business leaders. A few were in those areas that we need workers. Most of us went just because we're committed to Memphis. Mm -hmm. And we were just so surprised that they had these programs that were so logical that, <laughs> that we didn't have. You know, we've been sort of, um, it's sort of the unintended consequence of the generous Hope Scholarship Program that incentivized everybody to go to college, two year or four year. So that, that pays for it. But 
it sort of messes up the idea that, hey, we need a lot of people doing technical skills on a shorter-term basis than a two-year program because not everybody's geared for two-year college or four-year college. And the same goes through with for this high school thing I want to tell you about that Amity can come and explore even more. Yeah, so, give us the short story. So for the same reason that we've been pushing college for all these years, you know, we've been de-emphasizing uh, technical uh, trade training in high school, CTC, mm-hmm. career technical training. Yeah. Um, and so they just passed legislation at the state called Industry 4.0, which is going to make it easier for our kids in high school to get dual credits. Mm. You know, they'll get dual credits for high school and Southwest or whoever yeah. uh, in technical training. It's also going to make it easier to get faculty because you know, the faculty at places like Southwest, because places like that tend to, they're, they're academic institutions, so they have certain requirements for their right. faculty to be not only academic, but industry-oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't need for these accelerated programs and for a lot of technical training, we don't need academic training. We need industry experience so that people who may not be uh, all in the academic world in terms of teaching, but they've had worked in business, some type of industry for 20 years, and they want to do something different or slow down or whatnot, um, maybe people out of the military, that can come in and train people how to do things. And we just don't do enough of that like we used to when I was a kid. And so you think about every technical area, we're short. You know, plumbers, electricians, mm-hmm. you know, machinists. I mean, we're just short logistics. Um, so I'm excited about both of those areas, and you've heard about the STEM emphasis. Yep. Um, and so all three of those are, um, I think, very exciting initiatives that Amity and Ted are pushing uh, at the chamber. And you should get Amity on here. Let her tell you the whole picture. We will in the Absolutely. whole Absolutely, yeah. My friends out there. She chamber. talks even more than I do. <laughs> Well, we've we've so enjoyed having you today. Um, it has been an absolute delight. We're again grateful for your your willingness to step up and lead these really important initiatives. And we'll have you back to give us an update, uh, maybe at the end of the year. Enjoyed it. Thank so, ho- hope it helps your listeners. All right, Anna. I think we did it today. We did. So I think uh, the listener definitely has a lot to kind of marinate on. A think lot about. to digest. We would love to hear your thoughts. Um, we You can hit us up at info at newmemphis.org. Uh, definitely go to newmemphis.org and, and check out our events, and we will see you next Tuesday. Bye. This week's episode was made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com.